Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for listening to the JP Money Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about macroeconomics. We're going to zoom out and get a larger scale picture of uh, the macro economy. And we're going to talk about some things that you know indicate whether or not a country is being successful and how they are handling economic affairs. Uh, in addition to the different policies that government can create, at least here in the United States, to speed up or cool down the economy. So let's talk about macroeconomics today. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or afternoon. Thank you for listening to the JP Money Podcast. As promised in the intro, today we are going to talk about macroeconomics, okay? Uh, now, if you're unfamiliar with that term, uh, macro means large. Uh, you know, economics is this, the study of how people, businesses, or governments maximize, uh, you know, their satisfaction with the resources that they have. And so you put that together and you, you basically get the study, the large-scale study of how, uh, you know, the government operates uh, in terms of managing the economy. And so that's what we're going to look at today. That's what we're going to talk about. This is a little different than a usual uh, personal finance uh, podcast discussion that we might have on this show, uh, because normally we're just talking about individual decisions or maybe small businesses, some good old fashioned supply and demand and the interaction of producers and consumers. Uh, but we're going beyond that. And we're going to talk about things that we hear about in the news or might read about in the news and the impact that they have both on large-scale institutions like the U.S. government or global finance or international finance, but as well as how that can trickle down and impact you as an individual, okay? And now I always like to just think about how a car operates, and I like to think about that because uh, if you know me, you know that I don't really know how a car operates. I am very dependent on the internet, on Google to figure out how to fix my car when I have an issue, or my wife, she's pretty smart with that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, she gets it from her, her dad and her side of the, of the family. So kudos to them. Um, but when a, you know, an economic issue is occurring in a country, there are tools that the, the, the government has at its disposal to, to fight that off. Okay. Just like if you're driving a car, you've got issues to fight off the problems that you have. Okay? And if you, if you grew up in mid Michigan, uh, and if you drive around a lot, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? In those cruel, hot summer months, in the dog days of August, summer's winding down. It's like 95 degrees out there of humid weather. You know, your car might overheat. And, you know, you've probably learned over time to, to pull over to the side of the road, give your car time to cool down, give the engine the time to, to cool down, get that thing in the shade if you can. Okay, and then eventually you probably want to add some coolant to that thing, try to cool off the engine, start it back up, get the car to where it needs to get to. Okay, so you have that product there, coolant, to help fight a overheating engine. Okay, now you're probably more familiar, as I am, with, you know, close to 10 years of, of refereeing college basketball and driving all over the place in January and February. Your car might freeze itself, right, and you have no way of heating it up. Um, and maybe when your, your car starts to freeze because it was left outside overnight or something like that, you might need to, you might need to replace that battery or at least get some jumper cables or a portable battery and jump, jumpstart the car because the battery died because it was so cold out. Uh, that's an issue that I've run into many times, but the good news is we have tools to fight 
issues like an overheating engine or you know your car you know cooling down too much okay to to give it the adverse reaction to be able to you know heat up a cooling off car or cool off a heating up car uh that's important to be able to do to help you reach your goals okay now our macro economy works the same way our government entities have a few tools in place to fight that and when you hear about these in the news when you hear about things like monetary and fiscal policy uh, you know, prior to, to teaching or reading more about economics, I, I didn't really think much about it. And so I just found it interesting and thought it might be educational for the listeners of the show to kind of know what those what those things are. And so the the first thing that I, I like to teach about in addition to that car analogy is just the importance of understanding the business cycle in general. OK, if you look back at the history of our economy, you have many cycles of booms and busts. OK. And now these aren't always in a perfect spiral, so it's you know hard to say that you know we're in a we're in a bust cycle right now. We are in a contractionary cycle. Our GDP is declining, you know that we you know that it's going to pop right back up into an expansion uh, in the next you know month or two. It's hard to say. Sometimes it's short term. Sometimes it's longer term. Sometimes you know on average the expansionary cycles. Okay, when the economy's booming, those boom cycles last longer than the bust cycles. And so the overall trend of the U.S. macro economy is in an upward positive direction. Okay, Hence the reason that prices of goods and services have gone up dramatically over time. You might not notice it from year to year. You probably did in 2022. But you know, beyond that, you might not recognize the growing you know, price of goods and services. But if you look back at every 10, 20 year period, you're like, holy smokes, this, you know, the price of houses, the price of furniture, everything, you know, Christmas trees have gone up over time. And that's because the economy has grown over time. We've added businesses, we've added employees, we've added our population, we've grown our country size. A lot of, you know, inventions, technological innovations have occurred and so the economy grows over time, particularly the U.S. economy, but the, the global economy as, as well. OK. And so, you know, you you first understand that the business cycle is sort of a wave of upward and downward cycles. And when they're really high, you reach a peak. OK. And and the sort of characteristics, the indicators that that occur when we are in an expansion or nearing or reaching a peak in our economy is number one, most importantly, the GDP, the gross domestic product, the value, the total value of goods and services being produced in a country's border. And there's a few different methods of, of calculating GDP. Naturally, it's a very sort of complicated thing to uh, calculate. And so there's a few different numbers you might get. But overall, at the overall value of the, the products, goods and services that are produced you know, within a country, uh, is, is GDP. And you hope that that's increasing, uh, because if it's increasing, that means that the, the, the second indicator, uh, unemployment is decreasing. Okay. If our country's growing, if businesses are producing higher profits, then they are encouraged to build more and, and, and produce more of the goods and services that they're creating, which means that they're going to, be hiring more employees. Uh, they might be improving their R&D, their research and development. They may be investing in new technologies to try out new things because they're they're doing very well uh, as a company. 
And, you know, when you're doing well as a company, you can pay your employees more. When you pay your employees more, they typically spend more. And this cycle moves us upward and upward and upward. Okay. Now, one of the negative side effects of a booming GDP and a very low rate of unemployment uh, is that inflation tends to increase and might increase beyond the, the standard value of, you know, two to four percent. Uh, you know, as a, as an annual increase in inflation, that might be a, a marker of a healthy economy. Okay, so you want to be nice, and you know, an upward trend in GDP, an upward trend in employment, uh, and in, in a small sense of an upward, uh, you know, increase in inflation, are indicators that a that an economy is very healthy. Okay, now you know, pulling out the punch bowl before the party gets you know too overheated. Uh, is something that the role of government might need to do because if the you know rate of inflation continues to skyrocket because businesses are performing so well, the stock market's performing so well, uh, the GDP has increased so much, uh, and anybody that can find a job can find a job. Uh, that you know you might have a shortage of workers and you might have an inflation rate that's out of control, which is what we're starting to see right now or have seen in the past year or two. Where you know socially, there's going to be a very negative, you know, impact to that, right? You might see things like right now with the housing market, where the housing market's getting out of reach. The prices for many, you know, lower middle income middle income families, where they're getting priced out of that market, and so there can be some negative side effects socially and economically to having too strong of an economy, even though that might seem kind of unusual to think about and say. And so you know, it's almost healthy to have a downward trend in the short term for things like, you know, real GDP, uh, you know, because you, you don't want to have, you know, particularly nominal GDP, okay, the overall, you know, production not adjusted for inflation of goods and services in, in a country's borders, okay, because when it slows down, things are able to cool off a little bit, just like that car when it overheats in the summertime. You want to be able to, to make sure that the rate of growth is sustainable for, you know, the U.S. population, which has, you know, reached over 330 million people today that you don't want to have a system set up where there's, you know, so few winners and so many losers. It's going to be really hard to operate as a business and as a government if the good times get too good. Okay. So, you know, those are kind of the, the, the things that we call leading indicators where you can kind of see the health of an overall economy, okay? So you want to have uh, a real GDP that is increasing. Uh, you want to have uh, low unemployment. And there's a few different types of unemployment, like a, a, a small rate of frictional unemployment is actually healthy and okay for an economy. If a woman gets pregnant and she wants to take a couple years off of uh, work because she needs to raise her child, I would argue that that's a really good thing. If they're in a good financial situation and then that family can afford to do that uh, or, the, or the husband takes time off and, and he can take the time to do that, then that's a voluntary form of unemployment because it's best for you and your household. So it's okay to have an unemployment rate at two, three, four percent uh, because there's some, some good examples of unemployment. But, you know, structural uh, unemployment where maybe you're underemployed and you... Uh, you know, you can't find the type of job that you want to have, or you're not paid the, the amount that you're supposed to be paid. Um, that could be an issue. Um, you know, cyclical unemployment where you're laid off because, you know, the 
business that you work for work for is worried about their future earnings, uh, they might lay you off. That's an unhealthy, you know, unemployment, you know, example. And so you want to limit that, obviously. Uh, and then inflation is the other one. Okay, we like to encourage people to uh, spend money in our economy. It's good for businesses. Uh, it's good for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so people will hold on to their cash if we're in a deflationary environment because holding on to the cash is actually more valuable than spending it. So inflation is actually really a good thing for for the business and for the macro economy. Now, inflation that exceeds, you know, four, five, six percent, now you're running into something that's extremely, you know, unhealthy. And if that runs into a high rate of unemployment, we actually call that stagflation. That's, again, an extremely scary and unhealthy situation for many households to be in. Uh, so, uh, but inflation at, you know, one, two, even maybe up to three, you know, percent is really a healthy thing for an economy. That's not so much to where people are going to make irrational decisions and it's just enough to make them want to invest and get into, uh, you know, things that are going to grow in value and to feel comfortable purchasing things because, um, you know, they know if they hold on to cash uh, that it's losing its purchasing power over time. Okay. So uh, that's why a small rate of, of inflation is actually, you know, pretty good for an economy. And, and the other reason why is that the banking institutions in our country, when they can expect a two to 3% rate of inflation, they know what interest rate they need to charge, you know, other banks or consumers to, to take out loans from them. So they know that if they want to lend money out at 7%, uh, and the rate of inflation is 3%, they're making a real return of 4% on that loan. And when inflation is very uncertain, it makes banks very uncertain at what interest rate they should be charging. So they might be more likely to charge higher interest rates, which means people are going to be less likely to take out those loans. And before you know it, our GDP is declining uh, because people aren't borrowing money to purchase goods and services or buy homes or buy cars or whatever it is. And there's a downward cycle. Okay. So again, just, you know, want to reiterate that the business cycle, as well as our indicators of unemployment, you know, inflation, um, you know, GDP, these tell the governing authorities how well an economy is performing, okay? Which leads us to step two of macroeconomics, okay? Which is the role of government. Now, I find this fascinating. I also teach governments. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but our government has set up institutions, okay, that are able to have a little bit of influence or perhaps a lot of influence on how that e economy heats itself up or cools itself off, okay? Now, perhaps the most you know, obvious example is you know, we hit the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, we hit the COVID crisis and Barack Obama, um, you know, former President Trump, uh, current President Joe Biden, uh, has given out money in the form of stimulus checks to be able to encourage spending, you know, both so people can make their payments they need that, you know, maybe lost their jobs because of these macroeconomic crises, but also to encourage spending to keep the economy afloat. Now, the negative side of that, as we've already talked about, was higher rates of inflation, which we don't like when it gets beyond two or three percent. Um, but it's the role of the government to make decisions like that to try to heat up the economy when it's cooling off too much. And so the other, uh, you know, the, the two methods that I want to just, you know, share about is monetary and fiscal policy, okay? 
So let's start with let's start with fiscal policy. Now, the setup of our government, our checks and balances, our separation of powers, you know, provides certain authority to, you know, and delegated powers to the judicial branch, right? To adjudicate the laws, to say, you know, to interpret the law, to interpret the supreme law of the land, the U.S. Constitution. You have the executive branch led by the president and his millions of employees of, you know, agencies that work for the executive branch. Uh, And then you have Congress. Okay, You have the House of Representatives and the Senate that are the legislative authority in the country that create laws. Okay, so the power of the purse, okay, the the, the team that holds the purse strings is the U.S. Congress. Okay, and the framers of the Constitution did this intentionally because the House of Representatives, as it was created by the U.S. Constitution, was the only body of people that was chosen directly by the people. Okay, the president was chosen by the Electoral College, and prior to the 17th Amendment, the, the Senate was chosen by state legislatures. So they didn't want the you know ability of uh, the government to raise taxes without going through the direct representatives of the people, which is, again, the House of Representatives. Okay, that's what King George III did prior to the ratification of the new U.S. Constitution, and we wanted to protect you know, people's uh, you know, money in the form of taxation. Uh, so the government couldn't just, you know, abuse that power. Okay. So fiscal policy is predominated, uh, and predominantly used by Congress. Okay. So Congress has several different committees that are dedicated to the taxation power and to the spending power. Okay. The two committees that jump out to me are number one, the ways and means committee, which controls the majority of taxation law in, in our country. In addition to obviously, uh, the Department of the Treasury that belongs to the president, the executive branch, and the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service that works under the Department of Treasury, um, that controls taxation laws. Okay, so if the government wants to increase um, spending, they might decrease taxes to be able to give people more discretionary spending in their budget, so they'll go spend money to heat up the economy to get the ball rolling again. Okay, decreasing taxes has the same effect that, you know, President Obama had sending out those, you know, stimulus checks at the height of the, uh, you know, the crisis of 2008 and 2009. So that's one form of fiscal policy that Congress has, okay, to decrease taxes, to speed up the economy, or increase taxes to help our federal budget and to decrease discretionary spending in households, which means they're going to spend less money on goods and services, which in turn means that our macro economy is going to slow down. Okay, uh, so that's one that's one function of fiscal policy. Now the other you know function uh, that John Maynard Keynes, okay, a former British economist from way back in the day, would be a huge proponent of Keynesian economics would be to increase government spending. Okay. Now, when the president sets his policy agenda and, and gives it to Congress and says, you know, I want to earmark, you know, a billion dollars towards education in my next term or whatever the amount of money is. Okay? And it might be on defense, it might be on education, it could be on the Department of the Interior in our national parks, might be trying to increase cybersecurity. So maybe he wants money going towards that. The president and his office of management and budget is going to you know, request these funds from Congress. But as I told you, Congress holds the purse strings to be able to tell the president what they're going to give money for. So at the end of the day, the president can't always get what he wants. He's too reliant on the Appropriations Committee in Congress to be able to tell if if they're going to give the money or not. 
And so Congress might, you know, say, yep, we agree. A billion dollars should be spent on, um, you know, our, our infrastructure, you know, redoing our roads, redoing our bridges, whatever. Okay. Buildings in big cities. And Congress might earmark that money and it can be put into the annual budget. And so Congress gives money to these different industries so they can hire employees so they can in turn produce better things, maybe charge a better cost for it. So people are more likely to buy them. And that's another way that the economy can be stimulated. Okay. So that's fiscal policy in a nutshell. Okay. And the, and the, and the inverse is true as well. Congress can deny funding to certain programs or to certain uh, entities. And when that occurs, the economy is going to cool off, right? It's going to be really hard to give teachers a raise or, you know, hire more teachers if Congress is withholding funds to the Department of Education. That's a natural uh, effect that that'll have. So, there you go. That's that's fiscal policy. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, you have an independent agency uh, that's called the Federal Reserve that was created by the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 that, you know, we had just had a panic in 1907 that, you know, our economic structure and our banks were very ins- insecure, unsecure, and it's still not perfect. Our banking still goes through uh, a lot of issues from time to time. Uh, you know, certainly through the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, we've added additional safeguards over time to be able to address this, this issue. Uh, and so one of those things that we created was the Federal Reserve. Now, I find this fascinating. So the Federal Reserve currently has 12 uh, district, uh, you know, 12 district banks that are spread out throughout the United States. So I live in uh, Lansing, Michigan. So I live in the 7th District. Uh, which is, you know, headquartered in Chicago. And Chicago, that Federal Reserve is sort of the lender of last resort. They're the bank that that banks go to when banks need to increase or decrease their money supply. If they need to deposit money, local banks are going to go to the Federal Reserve Bank and deposit their money. If they need to withdraw it, they're going to withdraw from the Federal Reserve. Okay. Uh, and so those branches are all spread out. There's there's 12 of them. They're sort of headed up by a group of, I can't remember exactly how many members there are in total. I think there's seven or eight of them. And they're called the Board of Directors. And they serve 14-year terms. They're nominated by the sitting U.S. president, but then they serve beyond the U.S. president because they serve 14 years. And presidents typically only serve either four or eight. So this Federal Reserve, you know, this, this group, this Board of Directors, sort of set the different policies that are going to trickle down to these 12 Federal Reserve banks, which are then going to set policies that are going to impact the local banks that are actually giving out loans and, you know, banking institutions for regular old people. Okay. And they have a few tools at their disposal that they can also use simultaneously that Congress can use in their fiscal policy to increase or decrease economic activity. Okay. Now, Congress deals with taxation and spending in fiscal policy, monetary policy that's run by the Federal Reserve mainly impacts the money supply, okay? So if they increase the money supply or use the tools at their disposal to indirectly increase money supply, that is an expansionary policy that's going to hopefully grow the economy when more money is available, more people are going to have access to it. Interest rates will likely be lowered, so they're more likely to go get a loan to be able to spend money on different goods and services. Okay, so that's an expansionary policy. The Federal Reserve can also do the opposite. They can decrease the money supply. 
if they want to cool down the economy, if they want to discourage spending, they want to discourage lending out, uh, lending out loans. Typically, this will be in the form of what we're starting to see right now, much higher interest rates. Okay. And if you're unfamiliar with, with interest rates, this is, you know, I like to teach students who have basically no experience lending or borrowing uh, where the interest rate is essentially your price. The higher the interest rate, the more expensive it is uh, to, to buy something. The lower the interest rate, the cheaper it is. Okay. So again, if the Fed, the Federal Reserve, wants to decrease economic activity, they are going to decrease the money supply through one of three different methods that I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, to make it more expensive so interest rates will be increased and people are less likely to, there's going to be less money circulating in the economy. So people are going to be less likely to, uh, you know, spend, okay? Call that an incentive. They're going to have less incentive to borrow and spend. Now, the three specific ways uh, monetary policy works is the Federal Reserve can do one of three things. First, they can increase or decrease the reserve requirement that they give to institutional banks. Okay. These are banks that operate under the Federal Reserve, which is the large majority of banks in the USA. So when banks get money, they typically have to hold on to a certain percentage of it. Let's say it's 10%. And then with the other 90%, they can lend it out to other banks or lend it out to other people who are coming to the bank. So if I get a thousand dollar check and I bring it to my local bank and there's a 10% reserve requirement, bank has to legally hang on to $100, but the other $900, they can do what they want with it, okay? Uh, which would typically be lend it out, charge an interest rate when they lend it out so they can make more money. Okay? That's how the bank operates. That's how they employ people and whatnot. So if the Fed increases the reserve requirement, banks are going to have to hang on to more cash. They're going to be less, uh, there's going to be less money available for them to lend out. That's going to decrease the money supply. It's going to discourage economic activity. It's going to slow the economy down. So that's the first tool the Fed can use. The second tool the Fed can use, which we're seeing a lot in the news right now, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has been raising the interest rate 75 basis points uh, for a couple months straight now. In other words, he's increasing the deposit rate um, or the discount rate, excuse me, for uh, the Federal Reserve banks, for the banks that are borrowing from the Fed. So if uh, our local bank here uh, doesn't have their reserve requirement that they're required to have, they need to go borrow money from the Fed. And so when the Fed increases their discount rate, it's more expensive for the bank to go borrow money from the Fed. So when the bank goes and gets money from the Fed, and the Fed is now charging 4% for that, now, when they lend out loans, they have to lend higher than a 4% interest rate to be able to make a profit on that. So they're going to be less likely to borrow money from the Fed because Fed's charging a higher interest rate. And consumers are going to be less likely to borrow from the bank because the bank has to, in, in turn, charge an even higher interest rate than that. Okay, so that would cool off the economy. That's the second tool that the Fed has is in, you know, increasing or decreasing if they want to encourage spending that discount rate. And the third and final tool that the Fed has at its disposal is to purchase government securities through the Federal Open Markets Committee, okay, the FOMC. So that's another you know committee that works on the Federal Reserve. If they want to put more money in the pockets or increase the money supply of the banks, they might go purchase government securities like T-bills or bonds, 
Okay, so they're essentially taking the bonds and giving money in return for them. Okay, and so now the banks have more money. When they have more money, they're going to be you know more likely to decrease interest rates and lend more of it out, encourage spending, encourage growth in the economy. Okay, or the disc the the, the opposite can occur as well. The FOMC can choose to purchase, uh, or excuse me, they can choose to sell uh, those those IOUs, those government bonds, or whatever it is. And when they when they sell them, they are taking money away uh, from banks, and they're putting you know bonds in there in, instead. Um, and therefore, banks are going to have less money supply. When they have less money supply, they're going to uh, you know they're going to not be able to lend as much money because there's going to be higher interest rates and people are going to discourage spending. Okay. So there you go. That's, that's macroeconomics and the role of government in a nutshell. Now uh, I could go further in depth on each of those, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, I know this was very different for you. Uh, wasn't as much about individual decisions, but more just macro level decisions. So next time you see, Hey, Jerome Powell's raising the discount rate, which you might hear called the federal funds rate. Uh, that's what that means. Okay. If you hear about the FOMC purchasing government securities, you might mean, hey, they're trying to stimulate the economy and grow this thing. Or more likely right now, they might be selling them, which would be slowing down the economy. Okay. Or if you hear about increasing or decreasing the reserve requirement, that's what's going on. They're trying to impact and influence the money supply, which will have a trickle down effect to consumers like you and I to cool off the economy. All right. So thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Hope you learned something new. I know that was a mouthful. Uh, now you understand how students feel when they're listening to me lecturing class, but you know, um, hopefully you learn something new and now next time you watch the news, you understand what they're talking about. So thanks for listening to the JP money show. Have a wonderful day. Hey ladies and gentlemen, Jordan here, the host of the JP money show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please share it with others if you found it useful or helpful. And remember, this is not intended to be financial advice, you should consult a professional financial advisor to help you run the numbers and look at your own personal financial situation. Thank you.